Hello, my name is Callie. The Old Testament reading is found in Nehemiah 13, 25 through 26. So I scolded them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I also made them swear a solemn pledge in the name of God, saying, You won't give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Didn't Israel's King Solomon sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was well-loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign wives led even him into sin. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Allison. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, How is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain seated. I have a couple things to share with you before we pray this morning. Oh, please, oh, please be seated. I say remain. What did I say? Remain seated. That's a challenge. <laughs> Whoever figure out how to do it, please come and find the rest of us afterwards and teach us uh, your ways. Uh, a couple of just uh, things to share with you this morning before we open the scriptures. One, uh, today is the day that Pastor Glenn, our founding pastor, is set in as the new senior pastor at Rock Harbor in Costa Mesa, California. So if you think of it, pray for Glenn and Holly and the kids. If you follow him on Instagram, please just go on there and wish him uh, the best. Tell him we miss him. Say a prayer for him. Whatever you want to do to celebrate this moment for him. The second thing I want to share with you is an update uh, for another family in our midst. Over the last year or so, Jim and Martha Cole have been in a kind of a prayerful period of discernment about their future, about what God may or may not have in store for them, and kind of bringing all kinds of things to God in prayer and to others in conversation. And it's been a dream of theirs for a long time. Many of you know this if you spent any time with them. Uh, it's been a dream of theirs to live in Montana. And that dream is actually becoming a reality as next month, Jim and Martha are going to be moving to Bozeman. Uh, this is a huge deal in lots of ways. One, Martha was born and raised here. She's like one of the five people in the world that get to claim to be a native of Colorado. <laughs> And they're heading up to Montana. Jim and Martha have been a part of New Life Downtown since its incubation period on Sunday nights up at New Life North. And Martha has now been on our staff for eight years, uh, serving faithfully alongside of us. Their fingerprints are literally everywhere in the church, but particularly in our marriage ministry uh, as they launched and developed our ministry to people in their first year of marriage called First Year, have done countless number of pre-engagement sessions with people, including many of you, and Martha in the mentoring ministry that she and Evan have developed and in all of her individual one-on-one -on -one relationships with young women in our congregation coming alongside and mentoring them. And they have made... enormous relational deposits in Sarah and me and in many of you. And so I am, I'm trying really hard to be very excited for them. <laughs> I'm excited, but Jim and Martha, we are going to miss you greatly. 
And I want to invite you as a congregation, um, we have about another month with them here, and we want to spend that time this month praying for them. If you think of them, pray for selling their house here, buying a house there, and all that goes into showing houses and packing and moving and all of those things. Pray for them as they are walking through conversations with people and saying goodbye to longtime friends and celebrate with them. If you've had a moment where Jim and Martha have made an impact in your life over these last 8 to 12 years, please share that with them and let it be a way of celebrating and thanking them and a way of even giving honor to God for the way that he works in our lives through other people. And then we're going to send them off on Sunday, November 6th will be their last Sunday here with us. But Jim and Martha, we love you and we're going to miss you. Okay, now let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, we come before you because you're the one who's come before us. We're able to approach you in prayer. We're able to ask for your help because you are the one who's drawn near to us, who's come in the flesh, and who is described as Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is with us every day, even to the very end of the age. And so we come to you and ask that you would make your presence known among us, that you would draw us close to you, and that we would be more fully aware of who you are and what it is that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, last summer, I think it was last summer, Christianity Today uh, came out with a new podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It was one of those podcasts that just sort of caught fire, especially kind of among the Christian community, is the podcast uh, on a very large level sort of outlined the rise and fall of a particular leader leading a church in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area. I'm going to talk about how this church just grew in popularity and fame and in size and then had a very public Um, sort of ending to it that was related to the way in which uh, the primary leader of the community was leading amongst staff and people. And the podcast is sharing various stories of how this impacted those that were in the community. And of course, that conversation is not set by itself, but it's a story that many of us are familiar with of seeing it, maybe not that story, but maybe you know of another story of Uh, of a leader who had a very public, a very painful, a a very uh, destructive sort of falling out in the middle of things. And the podcast, I think, sort of caught fire in many ways because uh, as Americans, I think in particular, we are really kind of infatuated with leadership. We write lots of books about leadership. We have conferences on leadership. We're always sort of talking about leadership in all of its ways. And we're sort of keenly aware of the falling and the failing, the limits of leadership and find ourselves oftentimes sort of holding these tensions together and going, what do we do with this? Even ourselves, we find ourselves in places where we know the leaders that have disappointed us. And maybe it wasn't as egregious as some of the stories that are told in the podcast, but moments where we had, you know, sort of hope or expectations around a particular leader in our lives and then found ourselves left wanting in some way that, oh, they couldn't quite deliver on everything that I hoped, disappointed in some way. Or maybe those podcasts are moments where we even sort of wrestle with our own shortcomings as leaders, that we're listening to something like that and we're remembering all of the times. We're like walking home and going, okay, did I say that the right way? Did I do that the right way? Did did I make the right decision? What what do we do here? And, And finding those own moments of disappointment in ourselves or our own limitations, our own faults, and going, I'm not sure I handled that the best way that I could have or should have. We find ourselves in that all the time. And as Christians, we often sort of, in this leadership conversation, hold up Nehemiah as sort of a model leader. 
as one that we should aspire to be like and say, you know, in in all of this, here's a good example of a leader. In fact, most of the books that I see about the life of Nehemiah, most of the sermons that I hear about Nehemiah, most of the Bible studies around Nehemiah focus on Nehemiah's leadership. Nehemiah as the Old Testament's premier uh, sort of project manager and all the ways that he leads and all the successes that he has. And there's many. Nehemiah for 12 years has this really incredible sort of influence and impact and some successes that we can see and ways in which he is leading. There's so much to learn from his example. And yet that's not the totality of the story. <laughs> that when we actually read the entire book, We see that when we come to the very end of Nehemiah, when we come to the final chapter, which we're going to be looking at today, we run into the limits of Nehemiah's leadership. We run into Nehemiah's own failures. We chart through the book the rise and the fall of Nehemiah himself. Just as a bit of context for the book, as we conclude our series through it today, The people of God have, at some point in the 500s, ended up in exile. They're taken away into exile in Babylon. And then the Babylonian Empire is overthrown by the Persians, and their king, Cyrus the Great, says, it's time for everybody to go home. And we chart three different times where there's groups of people returning from Babylon to Jerusalem or to Judea. The first two uh, are told to us in the book of Ezra as we have people come back and they begin to rebuild the altar and they rebuild the temple. And then Ezra comes and begins to rebuild the community, especially around its ethics and the way that it's going to live in harmony with God's ways. And then that last move, the third return, is told to us in the book of Nehemiah. And we've seen throughout this book how Nehemiah comes back with a group of people and he begins to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the first six chapters sort of talk about all the things that they overcome in that process of rebuilding, reestablishing the walls. And then the final seven chapters talk again about rebuilding the community, rebuilding the people, rebuilding their faithfulness to God. Last week we saw the people gathered together and they're realizing the distress that they're in. Even after all this has happened, they still realize they're under foreign rule and they're being taxed in oppressive ways. And so they're coming together and they're confessing their own uh, fault in that, their own sin, the own things that they have done to sort of make a mess of their lives. And then they're coming together and they're renewing the covenant. They're like, but God, we're, we know who you are and we're recommitting ourselves to you. And they gather and they vow to keep the Torah. They say, we're going to keep all of it. We're going to do it all. We're going to get it right this time. And then they emphasize three particular areas that we discussed last week. The first one is that they're going to avoid interreligious marriages because they know how marriages of people of a different faith can lead them away from faithfulness to their God. And they're going to keep Sabbath and sabbatical. They're going to follow that commandment. They're going to make sure that they rest on the right day in the right way. And they're going to give the land rest and they're going to restore things to people. And then the final few verses of that chapter, chapter, they're going to financially support the temple. They're going to take care of the priests. They're going to take care of the offering. They're going to worship in right ways. And they're going to do all that they can to do this. In the next couple of chapters then, they begin to repopulate the city. They sort of do a draft and people come back in and everyone's cheering for them. Yay, you're going back. And then they rededicate the walls. They have a big ceremony. And then at some point, Nehemiah goes back to Babylon. He leaves and he goes back. We're not sure exactly why. We're not sure when and we're not sure for how long, but he goes. He's gone for a bit and then he comes back. And when he comes back, the wheels have completely fallen off again. (laughs) It reminds me of the story that my mom tells of one of the first times that she left me as a little kid in the care of my older brothers who are nine and 10 years older than I am. And I had one of those walkers. It was like late 70s, early 80s. And you put a kid in it and it had wheels and they walked around. Some of you don't know these things because they're now illegal in all 50 states. I think actually most of the things that I was raised on in the 70s and 80s are now all banned uh, everywhere. But you could like run around in this thing kind of all over the house. So my brothers are watching TV and I go into the bathroom and I grab the toilet paper roll and I start running. 
And I managed to teepee the entire house. I don't know how it was like extra strength, double ply. It like doesn't rip in any way. It was the first of many teepee adventures for me. The rest of them were all in high school at my friends' houses. <laughs> Sorry, Petersons. Um, but I just managed, and my mom comes home. She's like, are you kidding me? Look at this mess. My brother's like, what? <laughs> I turn around and see toilet paper everywhere. This is Nehemiah. He's coming back, and the whole place is falling apart. Nehemiah 13 tells us what's happened. Verses 4 through 14 says the people have been neglecting the temple. All these things that they said they were going to do are all being neglected. 15 through 22, we see the Sabbath is being violated. 23 through 31, those interreligious marriages have resumed. So here Nehemiah is, despite all of his efforts, despite all the things that he has done, the people are back in the exact same place they started in. Externally, things have improved. The altar's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. And yet internally, they're in the same place that they were before the exile. They're in the same place they were 170 years before, 180 years before at this point. They're in that exact same place. So here Nehemiah is coming back, coming back for his grand homecoming. You know, it's homecoming weekend in some places. Like, here he comes. He's coming back. And it's just a big downer. It's like my senior year homecoming football game. We lost 40 to zero. <laughs> the dance wasn't that great after a loss like that. You know, you're just like, let's go eat. <laughs> Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you're a leader in some capacity. You're a parent leading your kids. You're a teacher leading a classroom. You're a business owner trying to get something off the ground. You're in management. You're operating in some sort of oversight. You have people and things that you're responsible for. And it feels sometimes like all your efforts just get undone. The last two years, maybe it felt like the pandemic undid things or the sort of changes in the economy or changes in politics. You're like, I worked so hard on this, and now what do I have to show for it? Or you work so hard on something, and then you know, employees make different decisions than you would hope they would make. Or maybe even in a harder way, you raise your kids, and then they make different decisions. And you sort of wonder, what was all that for? Everything that you try can feel fruitless. At times, even pointless, like, why do I keep trying? Why am I trying this again? And in our spiritual lives, we can feel the same way. We can find ourselves stuck in the same patterns of sin. We can find ourselves just feeling still overwhelmed by shame for the past, or we keep going back into destructive habits and things that we've tried to walk away from, and it seems like nothing's working. It seems like it's just not working or it doesn't work for long. You may feel like I got a week of momentum or a month or maybe a year and then all of a sudden you find yourself back in the exact same place. And what typically happens for us in those moments is that we just double down. We're like, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to try harder. I need to do more. I need to try this next thing that I heard about on Instagram or that a friend told me about or I'm going to try this next program, this next idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grunt in prayer. Like I'm going to just, if I can... It'll work this time. Double down. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah comes back and is like, what is going on? And here's this general response. He gets angry, starts scolding people. That's always helpful. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to try new things. I'm going to put new leaders in place. I'm going to try some new ideas. But that's not all that happens. We actually begin to see that something's going on not only in the heart of the people, that something's going on in the heart of Nehemiah as well. And when he goes and he's looking at the temple, he finds that there's this room. There's lots of other things that are being neglected, but one of the things that really makes him mad is there's this room that's supposed to be for offerings. It's supposed to be for things for the priestly and worship. And they've cleared the thing out, and they've set up a furnished apartment for Tobiah, the Ammonite, the guy that was opposing him at the very beginning, the one who had all these ideas of like how to stop what Nehemiah was trying to do. The priest was like, come on, come live in the temple. We'll clear a room for you. And Nehemiah's like, are you kidding me? That guy? And so this is what Nehemiah does. I was very angry, and I threw all of Tobiah's household furniture out of the room. 
This is Nehemiah's leadership philosophy at this point. I'm going to start tossing furniture. I'm going to throw office chairs. Like, what is going on here? We begin to get a glimpse that maybe not as all, all's not well in the community, and all is not well with Nehemiah. He goes on and he gets to his first Sabbath and he realizes that the people of the land are coming in and they're selling all their goods and people are buying it. They're just carrying on economically like it's any other day. And so Nehemiah's like, that's enough. Close the gate, set up guard, don't let them in. And so what the people of the land did is they just sort of set up shop right outside next to his wall. It's like, that's my wall. What are you doing there? And this is what he says. But I warned them, why are you spending the night by my wall? If you do that again, I'll lay hands on you, and not in prayer. It's like, I will strike you. And at that moment, they stopped coming on the Sabbath. But he threatens them with violence. This is where Nehemiah goes next. And then when he discovers that these interreligious marriages are still going on, Ezra faced a similar concern. He had said, hey, this is a problem. We need to stop doing this. He instituted his own reforms. And when he saw that his reforms were ignored or failed, this is what Ezra did. Ezra said, when I heard this, I tore my clothes and my cloak, and I pulled out the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down in shock. He's dismayed. Here's what Nehemiah does. So I scolded them and cursed them and beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. And I also made them swear a solemn pledge in the name of God. You see, they're going like, apparently pulling your own hair out doesn't work. So I'm going to beat them and pull out their hair instead. He resorts to violence and to public shaming. This does not get included in the leadership books on Nehemiah. They sort of all stop early on. This is Nehemiah breaking bad. This is, this is the whole last chapter. And then there's aspects of this that we can sort of look at and go, man, and chuckle or shake our head. But the truth is, is that some of us have experienced this. And the people who were leaders for us, people that were responsible for us, whether it was teachers or it was administrators in school, whether it was parents at home, whether it was pastors at church, whether it was coaches, whether it was camp counselors, whether it's somebody that we trusted, somebody that was in authority over us, and we experienced these things as well. We experienced them throwing things. We experienced threats of violence. We experienced violence or public shaming, the kinds of things that Nehemiah goes to. Like, yeah. I've seen that happen. I've experienced that. Or maybe some of us, we read this and we find ourselves in the story not as the people that Nehemiah is doing this to, but if we're honest, we find ourselves as Nehemiah. We find ourselves so frustrated with how poorly things are going. We had all these hopes, we had all these plans, we had all these ideas, we had all this that we were gonna do to find them all frustrated and find ourselves making threats as well, and we're carrying the shame of all of that. When we get to the end of each episode, each of these sort of three movements of Nehemiah looking at something and then discovering something, something really strange happens at the end of each of them. Nehemiah confronts everything, he escalates, and then he pleads to God. Each one of them ends with Nehemiah saying, God, remember me. God, remember me. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project it says this, and I think he's right. It's, this is a sense of Nehemiah just kind of getting to the end and going, I tried. Just throwing his hands up and throwing himself into the mercy of God. It's an anticlimactic book. It ends with disappointment. Because then it just stops. Nehemiah says, remember me. And we're like, well, what happens? Like, does it work this time? Does Nehemiah's changes like, does he repent? Does he go back? Does he make amends? Does anything, we're like, there's gotta be another page. And there's not. The book just ends. We're left with all these questions, like what happens next? Why didn't it stick? What do you do in a situation like that? And I think when we think about the book in the larger context of scripture, Nehemiah confirms for us the real problem. 
They didn't need new leaders. They didn't need more or different laws. They didn't need sort of greater resolve or a higher amount of self-will. But the people and what Nehemiah ultimately needed was that the prophets had been saying that they needed for generations, that they actually needed to be made new, that Nehemiah and the people needed something deep to happen in their souls. Ezekiel puts it this way. This is God talking and saying, someday a day is coming when I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove that stony heart from your body and I will replace it with a living one and I will give you my own spirit. Why? So that then and only then and only with that spirit, you may walk according to my regulations and carefully observe all my case laws. It's not a like, I'm going to do it right this time and sort of buckle up and grit our teeth. Instead, he's saying, no, you actually need a new heart. And the other writers will say a new spirit, a new life. Jesus said it's a new birth. Other people will say you actually need to be recreated or to become a new creation. What Nehemiah reveals to us is what the scriptures are trying to reveal, us, reveal to us from the start is that we might be able to rebuild cities, but only God can renovate our hearts. Only God can actually renovate us. Only God can change us. And this is what he's doing in and through Jesus and the spirits. That all of the prophets, all that Ezekiel talked about was Jesus coming, Jesus giving his life on the cross, Jesus being raised again, Jesus ascending, and the Spirit coming, and us actually in that moment beginning to be made new when we place our faith and our trust not in a new leader, not in a new program, not in another set of rules, not in our own sort of like commitment to actually change ourselves when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone and recognize that we have our own faults, our own failures, our own ways that we don't live up and realize that we don't actually have the ability in and of ourselves to actually do the work that needs to be done inside of us. So we have to entrust ourselves to him, to believe who he is, to believe that he is who he says he is, and to actually follow him into the way of freedom. We have to say, okay, Jesus, I'm done trying this on my own. I'm giving it all over to you. I'm following you whatever way that you lead. And when we do that, when we place our faith, our trust, our whole selves to Jesus, then God begins to go to work. He begins to go to work on us. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul put it this way. He says, God is the one, not you. God is the one who enables you both to want, to desire, and to actually live out his good purposes. See, without God in our lives, without God living in us through the Spirit, without the redemption that comes from Jesus, our desires are misdirected and our lives are misaligned. And there's nothing that we can do to actually transform them on our own. We might be like, oh. <laughs> but to actually have the full renovation of our hearts is something that God does through the Spirit. He enables us to actually desire the right things in the right ways and to actually live according to his good purposes in the world. He's the one that actually changes us from the inside out. He reorders our desires and transforms our behaviors, things that we cannot do with our own grits. We're not in charge of the progress. We're not in charge of the process. But our participation in this transformation is actually required. It's not something that just happens to us. It's God doing it with us. What does that look like? What is it that we do do if, you know, sort of like, you know, white knuckling our way through our spiritual lives doesn't work? What do we do? It's as simple as this, is that after we place our faith and our trust solely in Jesus, then we habitually place ourselves in God's presence. This is our work. Our work is to habitually place ourselves in the very presence of God, to live in God's habitation to wherever it is that God is at work, wherever it is that God is showing up, to just continue to show up in those places, to present our bodies, 
to present our whole lives to him and just yield and say, God, have your way in us. To spend time with him and find that the more time that we spend with him, the more his spirit goes to work on those places in our lives and the more we're transformed. We see it actually in little pictures around us. That when we spend time with people, if there's someone that you spend a lot of time with over a long period of time, that the more you spend together, you start liking the same things. You start finding yourself talking the same way, using the same vocabulary, following the sort of speech pattern. We see this most evidently in married couples that the longer they're married, they start looking like one another. Like, how does that happen? Your wedding photo, you looked like you weren't related. Now you might be brother and sister. Like, I'm not sure how that happened, but now you look alike. Just spending time, the change happens. I've used this illustration before, but the other way to think about it is it's kind of a lot like tanning. But there's sort of nothing that we can do to, to make our skin darker. Like my Norwegian skin, like this is just what it is. And the only way to sort of make it darker is to put myself in the, in the light of the sun, to show up where the sun is shining, and then find that I get more freckles. That's what happens to me. Is to actually place myself somewhere where the sun can go to work on my skin. This is what we do with God, is we place ourselves in a space that God can go to work on our souls. If we want to stop lying, we spend time with the one who's truthful, spend time with the one who's true. If we want to find a way to get through our anger, then the start is spending time with the one who's gracious and who's patient. We find ourselves really struggling with motivation or with slothfulness, with laziness. We spend time with a God who's creative and industrious. We find ourselves on the opposite end, going like, I can't stop working, struggling with workaholism. We spend time with the God who actually is reigning over the whole world, who's actually in control of your life, and the one who teaches us how to rest. We find ourselves greedy, just sort of caught up in like material things and material worth and material identity. We spend time with the one who's generous, the one who gives. We find ourselves caught in sexual sin or addiction. We spend time with the, the one that loves us. The one who loves those places in our souls that feel empty, feel like they're lacking. Continue to spend time with him and let his love transform those very things in our life. We find ourselves caught up in shame. Spend time with the one who forgives us. <laughs> to know what it means to be forgiven. This is actually the purpose of the spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, or whatever you want to call them. My favorite is John Wesley, who refers to them as the means of grace. Now, all of these things, praying and fasting and reading the Bible and worshiping together and giving and serving and having friends who follow Jesus and looking for mentors that might walk with us and going to counselors who will help us sort of unwrap and unravel the things that are going on in our hearts. All of those things that we do are a means of placing ourselves in God's presence. They're a means of which God's grace just gets poured out on us. We don't do those things to sort of like check off a box of like Christian performance oh, look, you know, I did these things today. I did 10 minutes of this, five minutes of this. Like it's some sort of workout plan. It's not how they work. We don't do those things to prove ourselves to God or to anybody else. We do those things because those are the ordinary ways that we get to spend with God. That we get to be in his presence. That we can sit in the sun and say, okay, Jesus, have your way in my life. Come and heal me and restore me and free me and help me. I am at your mercy and I need your grace. Would you change me because I can't do it myself? And all those things are just ways we throw ourselves into the presence of God. As the band comes forward today, this is actually what we're doing at the table every week. We're throwing ourselves into the presence of God here at the table there's been lots of conversations from theologians over the years trying to figure out how God is present at the table and how God is present in the bread and in the wine and how his presence is there. And there's a mystery sort of around the presence of Jesus in these moments. But the real mystery is not how God is present in the bread and the cup. The real mystery is how God's present to us. That's why we come to the table. 
Because Jesus wants to be present to us. And he invites us to be with him. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? As we come to the table, I just want you to take a moment and begin to pray whatever you need to pray about as we approach this time. But I would like you to imagine Jesus coming to you. Jesus looking at you. Jesus inviting you to come and share a meal with him. Jesus inviting you into his presence. Jesus coming near, drawing you in. And as you're in his presence, begin to imagine shame coming off of you. Greed coming off of you. Addiction being broken, chains being broken off of you. Might just be one chain now and over the years him breaking it off. This is what Jesus invites us into. To be with him. That he might do the very things in our lives that we cannot do for ourselves. So ask him. Ask him to begin that work, to continue that work, to accelerate that work in you today as we come to eat with him. So friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, we draw together here at Jesus' table. This is Christ's table, which means that any who have chosen to follow him, who put their faith in him as the true king of the world, are welcome to receive, regardless of your church affiliation or your background. And if that doesn't describe you, thank you for joining us today, for being here to worship with us, to experience what we're doing here on a Sunday morning as a church in downtown Colorado Springs. We're honored you're here. We encourage you to keep coming, to keep asking questions, to keep chasing after Christ as you are searching. And if you are ready to believe, this moment is a unique opportunity to start putting your faith in Christ as we all join together to confess our sin, to ask for forgiveness, and to place our trust in him. So will we all join together to pray this prayer as one? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. From this, it's my joy to announce good news to you, words that are true not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So open up your hands, if you would, and receive again the mercy of God, that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, and this proves God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. So as those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, please stand and greet those around you in the peace of Christ and share that peace with one another. Let us join together again and proclaim these things as one, that Jesus is here and his spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. 
Amen. Would you do that? Would you join in and give your thanks and praise to our God? For it is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image and breathed your life into us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And it's from this that we remember this story. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We believe that all of us who are in Christ Jesus are part of the priesthood of believers. So if you would, would you stretch your hand out toward these elements or open them up as a sign of inviting the Holy Spirit to move among us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, Make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory. Amen. At this point, I'd like to invite our servers forward as we remember that these are the gifts of God. They are given for the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So in just a moment, we're all gonna come forward to receive and here's how this will work. In the front of each section, we ask you to exit your row to the left and come forward. If you're in the balcony, there are some prepackaged elements on the table up there, or you're welcome to join this, the station, uh, the section here on the right. If you're unable to come forward, just ask someone near you, introduce yourself and, and ask them to bring the elements back to you. There are prepackaged elements up here in the baskets as well or they can bring back the gluten-free cracker and non-alcoholic wine to you. And even if you're not receiving, that's okay. We ask you to still move forward with the rest of the row and just walk past the servers as you return to your seat. If you are going to receive, come forward with your hands open like this. The first server will take a napkin and place it in your hand. And then the next will take a gluten-free cracker, dip it in the non-alcoholic wine, hand it to you as they remind you that this is the body of Christ given for you and his blood shed for you. You can receive right then and there as we all go through the procession or return to your seats and prayerfully partake with those around you. There's one station here on the left, two in the center and one on the right. So here in the middle, if you'd alternate between them, that'll just help everyone move through. And uh, after we're finished with communion, our prayer and ministry team will be available for you at, front, at the front of the sanctuary. So if you'd like to receive prayer, uh, we, we can do that after our communion uh, is finished. So let's all come together as we worship in this moment here at the table and through our song and our prayers.
every tongue shall confess you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So church, as we go from here today, through this week, may we see that we are being made one with Christ. May we see that we're being made with one with one another. And may we be made one in ministry to all the world. So I encourage you to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you around this week. We'll see you around the city. Thanks.